bothers you that sometimes people don't value you for who you are. You know, even though I've, I've struggled to better myself, I've educated myself, I'm about to get a college degree, still looking at me as being inferior. You know, what more do I have to do to try to prove that, you know, I'm a worthy human being? This is Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. I'm Jorgen Ostensen. This episode, we're joined by Mofalme Sikivu. Mofalme, whose state name is Dante Mitchell, is a jailhouse lawyer, activist, scholar, and mentor. He's been incarcerated in New York State since 1998, when he was 17, on charges of armed robbery and attempted armed robbery. Mofalme is the founder and executive minister of a mutual self-improvement fraternity called the Ujima Fraternal Dynasty, which is known as UFD. He's so far been unsuccessful in getting the New York Department of Corrections and Community Supervision to approve prison chapters of UFD, though he has a legal case pending. Mofalme was recently sentenced to five months in solitary confinement at Marcy Correctional Facility for possession of documents relating to UFD. Mofalme has applied for clemency so he can continue the work of UFD from the outside, but Governor Cuomo has yet to grant his request. Awesome. An inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. To refuse charges, press 2. If you would like to press, thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. My condition is I'm currently being held 23 hours a day um, in an enclosed cell with a solid door with a small window. The window that goes to the outside is covered with stuff on it, like dirt, can hardly see out of it. The cell is dirty. They don't give us cleaning supplies. We're not allowed to have washcloths, shaving equipment, so I haven't been able to shave for the whole 30 days that I've been down here. The correction officers are very um, apathetic, um, rude, disrespectful. The lights in the cells are on all day and all night. Make sleeping very difficult. Can you explain from your perspective why you were sent to the box? The sentence that you got is 10 times the torture standard of the United Nations uh, for solitary confinement. I got this sentence because the hearing officer was extremely callous and, you know, they have this idea that solitary confinement and putting guys in, in, in FHU is somehow going to adjust their behavior or, but, it's, it's just, to me, it's all a farce. They just do it because they don't have no real respect for us as human beings. So I think that the reason why I got it is just that the hearing officer just doesn't care. They, you know, I'm in here, he's out there. They haven't had this experience, so they don't know nor care what they're actually doing to us human beings. And they look at us already as being, like, less than um, human. And oftentimes they say, well, don't come to the box. I mean, like, in my case, I came to the box because you sent me to the box for possessing literature that you say I shouldn't have, even though that literature doesn't pose a threat to safety and security. It's just you, you want me to follow your rules and regulations, um, regardless of whether or not those rules and regulations are actually rational and whether or not they're constitutional or even even legal. And the documents that you're talking about are part of this organization. You started the Ujima uh, Fraternal Dynasty. Can you explain what that is? Well, UFD is a mutual self-improvement fraternity. That means we're a brotherhood and a sisterhood of like minds who help one another achieve success and prosperity and who also 
um, push and challenge each other to do better, be better, and know better so that we can grow and develop into better human beings. Let's get it clear. The New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision does not reform and rehabilitate prisoners. That is not the job that they're, you know, engaged in. And in fact, taxpayers are paying these commissioners, assistant commissioners, and deputy commissioners, and the central office for the Department of Corrections in Albany, you know, sometimes upwards to $100,000 a year to basically run a failed system. Their system is flawed. It doesn't work. We, we know that because there's a high recidivism rate of individuals who get released from prison and come back. And 90% of us are going to get released someday. And instead of actually, you know, focusing on correcting criminal behavior, they make it worse because they put us in these institutions, these environments that are violent, they're controlled by gangs, and they're ran rapid by drugs. And they're not doing much of anything to do anything about it because it requires that the culture of the actual prison staff be geared towards, you know, actual rehabilitation and, and trying to uh, address some of the issues that prisoners have that lead them to crime, violence, and, and drug usage. So the environment is just, you know, conducive to making better criminals. It's not conducive to making better human beings. So what USD tries to do is intervene in that by creating um, a social network of, of prisoners who all have at the same goal. So we're making a social commitment to one another, to help one another, to, to, to better ourselves and to achieve, you know, prosperity and success in whatever um, shows the occupation that we choose to embrace. So we're there, you know, it's like a family, you know, you know, and, with, and for your family and the people that you are closest to, you're willing to strive harder because they're there with you. So you were 17 years old when you were arrested and you'd spent, you're about to start your 24th year in prison. Can you talk about how, like, your own personal experiences informed, like, what UFD is? I see a lot of these young men coming in and most of them are coming from communities like my own and they don't have the, you know, type of uh, guidance and support that they need and it's like a lot of wasted potential. And I've seen so much talent, man. I see in myself that I, I was redeemable. I've seen in myself that, you know, I was salvageable. So I see the same that I see in myself in a lot of these young men that are in prison and that if you give them just a little bit of, you know, attention and care and, and, and help them really re-examine their lives and what, you know, they've done wrong, they, they'll actually surprise you and become greater and better than who they were. You've been in prison. We've just discussed this will be the 24th year. I'm only 21 years old, so it's an immense amount of time. Can you talk about the role that racism and anti-blackness play in your daily life? Most of the prison guards and prison administrators um, are white, and most of the inmates and prisoners are black and Hispanic. You know, so that's just a, a stark contrast and a stark reality of the racism that exists within this institution, even though black and Hispanic um, men and women are a minority of the New York State population. Do we actually commit more crimes than, you know, average white people? Um, I think not. I think that the system is just geared towards targeting black and Hispanic people. And then you have these prison guards um, and these facilities that are, you know, just, you know, sometimes they can be blatantly racist. I've done heard officers call prisoners niggers and porch monkeys and um, really derogatory uh, names and it's just sad. So, you know, every day I'm reminded I'm a black 
prisoners, you know, and um, black prisoners, Hispanic prisoners, especially in this particular box, they fare a, a lot worse. Like, we're more often or more likely to, to be left in the cell without any sheets or blankets or clothing or tissue when we first come into uh, the box. Um, and you see, like, white prisoners usually get the better job. I remember when I was in Auburn, I wanted to work uh, what they call the depot. The depot is where uh, uh, the prisoners um, being transferred from different jails go into and they stay overnight. And for a very long time, you know, uh, the, the porters down in the depot were all white. And I had to ask the, the correction officer who was responsible for overseeing that area. I was like, why you never hire, you know, blacks or, you know, uh, black inmates? Or Hispanic inmates, he says, because you guys don't work as hard. So he just had this perception that, you know, black and Hispanic inmates and more so black inmates are just, you know, lazy and dumb and that white inmates could be more trusted. I try not to let it bother me on a psychological or emotional level, but it, it does. It bothers you that sometimes people don't value you for who you are. You know, even though I've, I've struggled to better myself, I've educated myself, I'm about to get a college degree, still looking at me as being inferior. You know, what more do I have to do to try to prove that, you know, I'm a worthy human being, that I'm somebody that, you know, has a mother, that, you know, I'm a brother to someone, that I'm, I'm a value to somebody. So it's just, you're going to judge me for the color of my skin, as, as you know, Martin Luther King said, instead of the content of my character. It's just really unfair, and sometimes it's very sad. And the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement has led to a, a national conversation about police violence and the social role of the police. Um, can you talk about the connections that you've made between the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, and your own experiences in prison? What's going on in the street with the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd, et cetera, is not anything new to me. You know, this mm -hmm. is something that we see pretty much regularly in prison. There are prisoners, black prisoners in particular, who have died at the hands of correctional officers just about every year and never get any real uh, attention. Um, one of my young Ndugus, who's only 19 years old, um, he was assaulted twice, um, once in his dorm by a white prison guard who just, some, for whatever reason, just didn't like him. You know, the, the kid's only 19 years old, he has severe palsy, he has a uh, a stunted left arm and uh, this white officer walks up on him and, and, and smacks him and then um, has him placed in solitary confinement and uh, once he gets in here, you know, they place him in a cell with no sheets, no blankets, no supplies, no anything, um, starved him for three days and when he complained about it, uh, two officers twice his size went in his cell and, and beat on him and this is a young black Hispanic kid, you know, it happens all the time. Respectfully, I understand the Black Lives Matter movement and I applaud the efforts that are being made now to really bring light to the situation. But I've been dealing with this for the whole 24 years that I've been in prison. And we didn't have any Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, coming to our rescue or, you know, protesting the abuse that uh, happened to us. Myself, I was a, a victim of, um, brutality, gall brutality, for which I have a lawsuit pending now and should be going to trial very soon on when I was in Clinton. Two white officers, three actually, larger than me, you know, jumped on me. The uh, sergeant tried to break my leg like he was really trying to fracture my leg. He was stomping on it with aggression. And it's like, where, where's Black Lives Matter right now? You were 17 when you were arrested. Um, and it happened in the late 1990s, which, as we all know, is a t was a time of like the largest expansion of 
prison system really in the history of the world. Many scholars and activists have described this policy of mass incarceration as a war on black, brown, and poor people. Can you talk about your arrest and then the incarceration that comes after in that context? This is pretty much modern-day slavery. I mean, it, this is used to control those dangerous classes, those individuals who are other than, who don't fit well within, you know, our society. And, you know, as I, I you know, learned and studied and, and, and really understood the history, I began to feel, you know, like, you know, this this whole thing was just a, a, a it was like a, 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 you just become a victim of, you know, this structural racism and this institutional racism that, you know, uh, stems from slavery. You know, there just, it just hasn't been any changes. It, where's the equality at? You know, despite civil rights, you know, it's, it's almost as if the society has found other ways to, you know, oppress and repress and to uh, keep down those marginalized groups that don't fit in with the with the status quo, with the norm. So, you know, I feel like I was a 17-year-old kid. Um, the officers that, you know, uh, arrested me and utilized deceit and lies in order to convict me, the judge and the prosecutor were all white. Um, uh, I had an all-white jury. I think there might have been one black person on my jury. So it was just like, it's almost as if you were just standing on an auction block as a black slave and, you know, your future is all, always being decided by, you know, these, these white people who didn't really understand you know, uh, your social background, your culture, your language, you know, your perceptions, your your struggles, what you're going through. And that's what kind of happened in my case. You know, the judge actually said that I was, you know, I was a part of a, he said I was a part of a plague. You know, at 17 years old, you tell a 17-year-old kid, well, actually I was 18 when he actually sentenced me, but you tell an 18-year-old kid at that kid that you, you're a plague, you're like, you're not redeemable. He, he knew nothing about my life. He knew nothing about the struggles I went through, how I had to watch my mom being, you know, beat up by her boyfriend or stuff, uh, 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 struggling with substance abuse or how we lived on the street and, you know, how at the time that I committed the crimes that I did, I was, I was poor and struggling. Like, you, you didn't, how am I part, am I part of a plague or is society just not creating the opportunity you know, allowing equal access to the opportunities that other people because of their specific social upbringing or their, the color of their skin have a greater advantage and access to the need. And obviously, the, you know, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution has an exception clause that clearly states that you can still enslave people legally in America as long as it's punishment uh, for crime. Um, I want to ask you what you think needs to happen to make uh, New York and the United States more racially just. Unless we have the weapon power to defend ourselves and to protect our own rights, then we will always have our hands out for others to do it for us. And I just feel like that, that's, that's why there isn't really, uh, you know, much advancement being made towards racial justice in this country because there's not even economic justice. You know, I mean, People are out there living from paycheck to paycheck and they're starving and they're not able to uh, help them, you know, fend for themselves financially. And we're talking about racial justice. I mean, we need to deal with the, the basics first. Like some people can't even feed themselves. Some people can't even pay their rent. So it, it, all of this to me stems from economics. If we can't create more economic parity in this country and 
and, 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 and at the bottom of that is education parity where there's more education opportunities for those people who are disadvantaged, then there's not going to really be much of a change. And this is one of the major reasons why I created USB because USB, you know, is designed to address that issue to empower black and, you know, disadvantaged people regardless of their color or creed socioeconomically. You know, our idea is to try to put more wealth and power into the hands of those who have it the least but need it the most. And if we're able to do that, then, you know, now we can be more on equal footing and we can, you know, now address some of these issues of racial injustice as well. Can you talk about what you would do if you got clemency? What, what would what would you do if you were out here um, in what we refer to as the free world? I really want to build this organization. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to teach people how you can work together with others to help yourself. And one of the things that I was thinking, like, you know, I want to I wanna come home and adopt me. I want to adopt a child like me that didn't have, you know, a father figure in their lives. And I want to do stuff like that. I want to be like a, a, a big brother, a father figure to young men and women who don't have, you know, that in their lives. So, you know, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, excited about the prospect of becoming a father, you know, a foster father, an adopted father. Um, a big brother, a youth counselor, you know, a friend of people who are in need, you know, a counselor to those who, who need to hear or who need someone to, to talk to. You know, I'm just, I'm just excited about the, the, the prospect of just doing for the community and seeing other people happy and, and, you know, helping people out of their, their bad situations. You know, just, I, I really want that opportunity. You don't know how badly I want to be able to, you know, expand the work that I'm already doing. Well, Mufame, I really appreciate you answering all these questions, and I know it's a lot of it is pretty personal and pretty serious, but I really appreciate you, you know, all the time, but especially for doing this. And I really appreciate you, and thank you for um, inviting me to this interview, and I want to also say thank you to the radio station that um, airs it, and I also would like to thank the people who are listening. You just heard from Mufame Sekivu, the founder and executive minister of the Ujima Fraternal Dynasty. He's beginning his 24th year behind bars in New York State. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, every year a human being spends in prison takes two years off their life expectancy. Mufame Sekivu's sentence could keep him locked up until February 8, 2051. And that's it for this edition of Community Dialogues. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. I'm Jorgen Ostensen. Thanks for listening.